Coming up on Stu Does America, Alyssa Milano has been the champion of the Me Too movement for years. Unfortunately, though, her loyalty to the cause doesn't quite extend to accusations against people on the left, specifically Uncle Hair Sniffer Joe Biden. We'll get into that. Dan Andrews and I had to get the top news stories out of the way so we can chat about our favorite television shows. And Kyle Mann, editor-in-chief of the Babylon Bee, stops by to talk about how humor and satire fit into the political world of today. It's almost officially the weekend. Why not spend some of it catching up on this stupid show? Head to YouTube, Facebook, Pluto TV, or your favorite podcast platforms to watch uh, this and all of our episodes completely free. We just ask that you consider taking a moment to rate and review the show. It's super easy. You can do it. Everybody can do it. And if you want to really be part of the family here, subscribe to Blaze TV and get Stu Does America and about 5 million other shows uh, on your devices. Go to blazetv.com slash stew and be sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And I'll knock 30 bucks off. It made lots of promises, okay? Uh, I made it promises this week to you and if you caught the disclaimer at the beginning, you know what I'm talking about. If not, you're out of luck because I can't tell you that. Does America. Let's take a quick walk down memory lane, shall we? It was late 80s, early 90s, the heyday of McDonald's pizza. Your fearless host, Stubergear, was right around 12 or 13 years old and had just finished reading The Art of the Deal by a local businessman named Donald Trump. Also, uh, got Trump the game as a birthday present one year, <laughs> and you thought you were a cool kid. Mm -mm, not like me. Not only was I a Trump fanboy back in the day, I was definitely in love with Alyssa Milano, star of Who's the Boss. Now I'm all grown up, and it's so sad because they just absolutely hate each other. In fact, you can find Melissa, Alyssa Milano today as a prominent celebrity endorser of Trump's opponent, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., Alyssa didn't start the Me Too movement exactly, but she did seem to start it on Twitter, or at least her friends started it on Twitter, and then she got all the attention for it. Uh, Alyssa tweeted, uh, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. Uh, and she had posted a, a note from her friend. A friend, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Wow. I mean, if you look at that tweet, by the way, it seems like she actually got ratioed on her Me Too tweet. Sad. Milano uh, went on to be more of a uh, Me Too celebrity than a regular celebrity, eventually becoming one of Hollywood's lead attack dogs against Brett Kavanaugh, including the triple dog dare of Twitch Twitter emojis, the clap between every word. That's how you know she really means it. You can't pretend to be the party of... Actually, I don't want to be accused of misquoting her. Can we? Uh, you can't pretend to be the party of the American people and then not support a woman who comes forward with her Me Too story. Hashtag Tuesday thoughts. I want to give her an extra clap there. Then I would be accused of misquoting her. It's a requirement to represent the American people to support women who make accusations. It's a standard that almost everyone on the left adopted immediately when there was a chance to stop Brett Kavanaugh from being confirmed. You and your testimony are credible. You and your testimony are credible. You and your testimony are credible. We believe you. We believe you. We believe you. Signed, 
your sisters. Signed, your sisters. Signed, your sisters. Signed, your sisters. This believe all women idea, a.k.a. the we judge you by your genitals, unless you say you are still a woman when you have male genitals, theory kind of has a few problems with it. Number one, you should try not to use the word genitals more than once when naming your theories. And number two, it happens to be at odds with Western civilization and all semblance of human fairness. Other than that, though, I mean, it works pretty well until Alexandra Tara Reed. Reed accused Biden of sexually assaulting her back in 1993 for purposes of timeline. That's just after the heyday of McDonald's pizza. Reed's claim, importantly, of course, did not come from a conservative source. She's not conservative herself, and her claim fit all the qualifications of a highly credible accusation. Number one, Reed is a woman. Number two, actually, that's all you need. Remember, Alyssa, you can't pretend to be the party of American people and then not support a woman who comes forward with her Me Too story Tuesday thoughts hashtag. The support, however, has not been there for Reed, shockingly, from basically anyone on the left, including Alyssa Milano. She tweeted, hashtag believe women does not mean everyone gets to accuse anyone of anything. And that's that. It means our societal mindset and default reaction shouldn't be that women are lying. Oh, now I understand. It's the exact opposite of what you were saying before. (laughs) That makes perfect sense. She explained further in an interview. I have not publicly said anything about this. Um, if you remember, it kind of took me a long time to publicly say anything about, about Harvey as well. Good. Because I believe that um, even though we should believe women, and that is an important thing, and what that statement really means is like, you know, for so long, the, the go-to has been not to believe them. So yeah. really, we have to sort of societally ch- change that mindset to believing women, but that does not mean at the expense of not, um, you know, giving men their due process and and investigating situations. I like uh, that. And, and giving, you know, it's Uh, gotta be, it's gotta be, it's gotta be fair in, in both directions. Oh, first of all, maybe a little too much Bailey's in the coffee. Just throwing that out there. I know it's early in the morning, but, you know, just a little little dabble, do you? So much to unpack out of that clip. I love how she uses the fact that she also didn't immediately accuse Harvey Weinstein as a point in her favor. He's a longtime Democratic donor who just happened to be very powerful in her industry. Please don't let her represent herself in a court of law. And I love the host. Uh, I like that. I like that. It's a, I like it too. It's a wonderful new idea, isn't it? I can't believe you thought of it. I like that. The person speaking is Andy Cohen, Bravo host, uh, who would know a little something about being accused of questionable sexual behavior by an ex-lover. Now, sure, the accusation was made by insane person Kathy Griffin, so you might just dismiss it because of that. Or maybe it can be dismissed because it came from a man, a male lover. I'm not sure who wins in the intersectional Olympics here, but somebody probably, we all lose in that game. But what Alyssa Milano is asking for 
a standard in which women are not reflexively believed, but instead are taken seriously when making accusations, is the standard conservatives are asking for. That's our thing. That's the one we've wanted the whole time. Plenty of men are horrible, yes, but so are plenty of women, and I assume the other 59 genders as well. We all suck, and you can't trust someone because of their genitals. The accusation against uh, Biden seems to have plenty of issues. Supposedly happened in a corner of an open public room. Her stories were only corroborated by her brother and friend, no other material witnesses. The story itself had several notable uh, inconsistencies. She praised Biden years after the alleged attack, and she had a bizarre habit of profuse praise for Vladimir Putin, which doesn't really have anything to do with the story. I just find it interesting. None of this means the attack didn't happen, but there are tons of legitimate questions about what is actually going on here. The problem with this uh, new fancy Alyssa Milano standard is that she only seems to want it applied to people she's aligned with politically. So now we have two different standards to choose from. Which one is right? We can embrace the torching of Biden and act as if we know anything about her accusations. We can ignore all the apparent problems with her claims. We can adopt the Brett Kavanaugh standard and use every tactic possible to trash Biden for political gain. Maybe we can ruin his life in the process. Or we can adopt the standard given to Biden today, which is to treat the accusations seriously, but not launch a media trial. While it might not feel good, the Biden standard is the better one when it comes to the concept of innocent until proven guilty. If you want to do a deep journalistic dive into these claims with a serious but skeptical eye, that's one thing, I guess. But, you know, it's the only thing we have right now to do anyway, because we don't have the ability to do an official investigation anymore. Well, it would be great if we could put real abusers behind bars for incidents that happened long ago. That shouldn't be the only goal, and it really shouldn't be the final goal of Me Too either. The goal needs to be a situation that allows women to feel comfortable coming forward to authorities immediately afterwards. This allows us to get evidence, to investigate, to protect due process, yes, and to protect other women from becoming victimized themselves. Or we could just go with the Alyssa Milano model and decide guilt and innocence based entirely on party registration. Who does America? You want to try to do business with people that you actually like. People that you think do a good job and that you can really respect. Black Rifle Coffee is a veteran-owned and operated premium small batch roast to order coffee company for people who love America. I know they love America. They fought for it. Uh, and they work hard to make sure your coffee is absolutely amazing. They import only the highest quality beans from around the world and always roast to order their coffees for you after you place an order to ensure that you have the freshest coffee available. Uh, my wife gets the coffee in the morning, and then I always find it in the microwave later on because she's decided to reheat it. I don't even know what that, that's about. Uh, we don't have that problem anymore. Why? Because Black R- Rifle Coffee Club uh, is, is here for us. It's the best way to enjoy a real freedom-filled cup of coffee. Black Rifle Coffee Club, you get this amazing selection of coffees, and you get to choose the amount and the blends that you crave, and they offer it at a special discounted price. Ship free directly to your home or office every month. It's not like you could go out to buy it anyway. 
so they have to ship it for free. But they always do it this way. The added convenience lets you uh, keep working hard, making America the land of the free, the home of the brave, and make sure you don't have to rush to the store when they open. Wake up to America's coffee by going to blackriflecoffee.com slash stew. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash stew. Enter the discount code stew. Receive 20% off your first order of any coffee products, including Black Rifle Coffee Club. Again, it's Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, it's a 20% off when you use the code stew. Make sure you do that because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you get 20% off at blackriflecoffee.com slash stew. I want to talk to you about New York City and the terrible things going on there. Um, Mike Bloomberg, I mean, he was a terrible mayor um, and it was a terrible presidential candidate. And uh, he uh, he is uh, his situation pretty dramatically horrible. Uh, I bring uh, you Dan Andros, who uh, at least used to commute in there with me uh, to, to New York City. We experienced a lot of New York City together. Um, wasn't always positive, but uh, welcome to the program, Dan. Thank you. Uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, has we, we never got to this and it's been sitting on my desk for a while. They now say that he spent almost a billion dollars on his campaign. Nine hundred and thirty five million three hundred and sixty thousand six hundred and seventy five dollars and fifty six cents during the 2020 election cycle uh, to get basically no delegates, no votes. He had a surge in the polls and then went away when people actually started to care is this the worst billion dollars ever spent, Dan? Um, I would have to think it's right up there. Um, I, in New York Times math, by the way, that was that's about what? About $2 million per person in America? <laughs> Something um, like that. <laughs> uh, for, but yeah, I mean, like, if you really think about it, I mean, did anyone ever think this guy ever actually had a shot? Um, and, and so to spend, I mean, I guess people around him must tell him, yeah, you, you should do this. And, and maybe he thinks that, but... Um, all I can think of when I look at a guy like that is it must be really nice to have a billion dollars to just blow on a, uh, you know, personal ego tour. Yeah. You know, I, I my initial instinct, I think, is to agree with you and that, like, this is a huge failure. Right. Like he wasted a billion dollars and got nothing out of it. However, when I kind of stop and think about it for a second, let me sell you on the positives of this case for a moment. It's not going to be easy. Um, but <laughs> if you're a billionaire. And you're Michael Bloomberg, and you've got $60 billion, okay? You spend a billion dollars on a presidential race that you have a very small chance to run. But, you know, you're getting up there in age. You're like 80 years old. What else are you going to do with your life? What else are you going to do with your money? Why not give it a shot, see if you can run the free world, and if you lose, you go home with $59 billion. It's not the worst situation in the world. I mean, I guess, but I mean, it just seems like you could have a lot more fun. Like, this seems like, why go out there? Why try to run a campaign? Like, why not just do something like, I don't know, take a million dollars and just go out on a road trip and just give away a million dollars to people? It just seems like it'd be more fun and more valuable to actually society uh, to just help people. Hey, go around. You know what? You guys seem like you're nice people. I'm going to buy off your house. Like, I would watch that TV show and I'd watch him, you know, I'd follow him on social media if he was doing stuff like that, you know, or, uh, you know, I could see that something like that. I just I, think there's a lot of different ways you could spend a billion dollars in a more exciting fashion than a horrible campaign that was doomed from the start. And plus it ends in your uh, utter 
embarrassment. Uh, so it's not even a positive yes. result. I will say this, no. however, uh, for uh, for Bloomberg, he could still do all the crap you're talking about. Guy's still the eighth or ninth richest man in the world. He can go. He can do all these things. There's not enough time in his life remaining for him to actually spend his money. So why not take guess, a few a few lottery tickets at something that could be? I, I mean, I'm sure he would have been very entertained by running the country. I think what this has proved, Stu, is that uh, he's not smart. Uh, because why? You know, he could have done all those things, and he didn't do them. He did the worst thing he could do with it. Uh, which was completely wasted and make a fool out of himself. Well, so, I, yeah. uh, well I, I will say he did do something very valuable, though, with the money, which was finally completely and utterly destroy the idea of your ability to buy an election. He spent a yeah. billion dollars in like a month and a half. He got nothing out of it. Um, and we also saw Tom Steyer do the same thing in the same race. All this money got nothing out of it. And the guy who's going to win the nomination didn't even run ads in the states that the key states that he won, Joe Biden, because he had no money because it looked like he was failing the whole time. You can't buy an election. I'm glad that talking point is finally dead. And not only did he lose to uh, a guy who wasn't running ads, he lost to a guy who, when he was uh, in the media, couldn't speak a full sentence <laughs> and uh, still can't seem to do it. And I don't mean to say that as like a mean joke on Joe Biden. It's just the truth. Like that he's really having trouble uh, communicating eloquently at all. And so, um, yeah, that just really highlights uh, just how bad of a failure this was for Bloomberg. Let me uh, let me go give you a little window into the campaign here. This story is pretty incredible um, because you can buy a lot of people. Uh, and their time yeah. uh, to go out and do these uh, campaigns for you. And you can get you could pay over market. I mean, he was paying way over market to lure in people from all these different campaigns, all these different walks of life to work for him, had a huge staff. This is how he spent a billion dollars. This is what he got out of it, though. I thought this was pretty amazing. Um, despite an almost limitless budget, the Bloomberg campaign would learn that money can't buy loyalty. Staffers described an almost total lack of belief in Bloomberg himself. Most people knew this was a grift, one campaign official explained. At our first office meeting, my director said, we don't need to canvas. We can just make calls. Right, guys? And everyone was like, yeah, that's sensible. Uh, another employee who specialized in social media explained how their coworkers lack of enthusiasm resulted in lackluster engagement with social media audiences, which often left to tw uh, tweets so perfunctory. Many would just copy and paste campaign talking points that their Twitter accounts would get mistakenly flagged as spam and suspended. Multiple people described elaborate schemes to undermine the campaign and help their favored candidates. One staffer explained, I would actively canvas for Bernie when I was supposed to be canvassing for Mike, I know of at least one team of volunteers that was entirely fabricated by the organizers who just had to hit their goals. I mean, <laughs> you got to think of a guy who's running his campaign like that. Imagine what a disaster of a president he would have been. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm telling you, Stu, I'm really shocked. Very shocked to learn that the tweets that came out of the Bloomberg 2020 campaign were done by people who didn't care and didn't <laughs> like him and didn't want him to win because that's exactly what they look like. Yeah, they did feel that way. They were like, you know, they were trying to do all this cutesy social media stuff that didn't work at all. Remember, he was like spamming people's inboxes, asking for like to pay them <laughs> off to write memes about him. It was a weird that was a weird, weird week and a half. It felt like. Yeah, and it turns out it was just Bernie supporters tweeting them. Yeah. So <laughs> we didn't even know that. Um, but let me just give you one more. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, what's going on with New York right now is is, is crucial. Um, and what I'm talking about, of course, are mutant rats. Um, there is another situation here 
where I just love this headline. Our war against urban rats could be leading to swift evolutionary changes. Hmm, could be. Uh, they talk about how they go through and try to kill all these rats in New York with the rodenticide and all that other thing. It's a weird word. You see it all over the place when you're in New York um, because it'll just caution sort of yellow and black tape rodenticide. And what they're doing is they're killing all of these rats and then they're getting the boomerang effect. Uh, what is happening is the repopulating rats are coming back after all the attacks and they are fundamentally different than the rats present before the lethal control was carried out. Um, they are looking at a 90% reduction in the genetic variation of these rats. And now they are the survivors of all the uh, poison are closely related to each other. And now there is a greater risk of inbreeding. So you not only have giant, ugly, awful rats, you have inbred rats, which is technically slightly worse. And then uh, another thing that happens is the only rats that survive are like the Arnold Schwarzenegger rats, like the rats that can survive anything. (laughs) So what they're seeing here is those rats come back. They are resistant to all of the stuff to kill them. And then they are breeding super fast. And this is a quote from the story. Survivors may be better adapted to uh, take advantage of the high-resource minefield of modern cities, leaving a new population of super rats to breed and repopulate. Mm. Uh, Ugly stuff. The the New York Post is very excited about this development because I would remember at least once a month there was a story about the giant rat spot. Uh, sightings in New York City and it would just be like these you know massive rats that look like the size of pigs or something like that yeah um, so it looks like they they are officially confirming uh, some ROUSs there in uh, New York City rodents of unusual size I don't think they exist yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I will be interested though to see them fight for pizza because they if, I mean these two mega rats kind of brawling over pizza We're, we don't have sports right now for <laughs> unknown reasons that could be something we can all get together, put a little money on, and keep ourselves entertained um, while we happen to be home for whatever reason that might be. Uh, Dan, hold on one second. We're going to come back on the other side because there is stuff that we have to uh, entertain ourselves with. We have some recommendations for you if you happen to be home just because you're bored or because you have a vacation coming up soon from your job where you go to work. We'll get to that here in just a second. So let's talk about uh, what's going on your televisions, uh, because it's important at this point in particular. Uh, Dan Andros is back with us. We had a couple of um, wanted to talk through a few recommendations, a few thoughts on how to uh, break up your time uh, as you're looking uh, through maybe your Netflix catalog, uh, Amazon, whatever you have. Uh, you can you can get a lot of these shows. I mean, we'll start it off with Tiger King just because everybody's talking about it. You've watched the whole thing, uh, Dan. Can you give me some uh, thoughts? I'm about halfway through it so far. Yeah, I mean, definitely not watching it because of anything that's going on that, uh, you know, outside, right. in the outside world or there's, anything There's like nothing that. that would Obviously influence. Obviously nothing uh, like that. No, mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. Actually, the real reason I watched it was uh, just because everyone was talking about it on Twitter. And it was one of the ones I caved on, and I was like, all right, I'll watch it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, this is one of those shows that I'm literally internally conflicted on, and I'm not being <laughs> flippant about that. Like, I, I actually felt bad for watching it. Um, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but, like, uh, because I just, I find no redeeming value in it whatsoever. And you know, it's like, am I supposed to just be entertained by watching literally the worst human beings on planet earth? Um, you know, without giving away any real spoilers here, 
um, you know, the, the white knight in shining armor on the show or the closest thing to it probably killed her own husband by feeding it to tigers, feeding him <laughs> to tigers, probably. So, um, that's, I mean, that's the level of depravity we're talking about here on the show. Yeah, it definitely, I, there's two ways to go with that, right? You can kind of feel bad or it can make you feel better about your own life, which is another way to go. Um, but yes, Tiger King is out there. It's, it's, I mean, I like documentaries. I'm a big documentary guy. Uh, that's, yeah. I could honestly watch them all day. Yeah. Certainly fascinating. Yeah. I just watched them with some Unabomber one the other day. It was really good. Like I just can get into that stuff. You know, the, 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 uh, this is the, from the same guys who did the, um, uh, the fire festival documentary that came out a couple of years ago, which was really good as well. Um, one to go back on. Uh, you can check that one out. Another one in the uh, sort of documentary category is, is McMillions It's on HBO. McMillions is a um, it's the story of basically how a group of people scammed the McDonald's Monopoly game, uh, which I had no idea. I remember playing that game when I was a kid. Uh, I had no idea it even happened. I missed the story completely. Um, but it is uh, the story of how they kind of go through. And you'd love this show, Dan. It's on HBO. Yeah. Um, worth picking up, though, for whatever, like two bucks an episode, because there's only six of them, I think. And it's just the story is absolutely insane. Yeah. And I'm just glad, Stu, that this one isn't about me because uh i think you may recall this uh obviously grew up together but i mm. i actually found with a friend somebody had stolen the big giant they used to keep all of those uh mcdonald's like monopoly pieces like in like a big like jug kind of on the counter uh -huh. and somebody stole them all once and then must have just chucked it on the side of the road and they were literally everywhere and my friend and i picked them all up and i had like free mcdonald's for about six months after that <laughs> that does seem like a, a story you're utilizing to s cover for your own stealing the jug is that is that where this is going uh no we just oh, found it no okay. actually uh, we, we did find it that is the truth i will say this uh if the mcmillions producers are out there and you need a sequel i mean dan andros obviously this is a very fertile ground to go uh, check out uh we'll look into that in a second also on uh, netflix um ozark is another one i love uh very dark uh, if you'd like dark television, uh, this can get you through. Again, this is, so speaking of no redeeming value, we have not given you yeah. a show with anyone with redeeming value so far. Um, but uh, Ozark is really well done if you like this type of show. If you like Breaking Bad, you like you know Better Call Saul, you like that sort of vibe, Ozark is great. You probably already know about it, but uh, it's another great one. You're watching that too, right, Dan? Yeah, I'm watching it, and it is really good. I mean, it leaves you at the end of every episode like you almost are forced to binge it, and like <laughs> you end up staying up till 2 in the morning. But it is one of those shows that makes you sort of cheer for the bad guy. Um, and I think I finally flipped at some point halfway through this last season where I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm not cheering for them anymore. Um, <laughs> but they do put you in that weird position where you're like, oh no, the FBI is onto them. I don't want them to catch them, you know? So uh, it does have that aspect to it, but it is really well done and it's, it's certainly compelling. You uh, are high on The Mandalorian as well. That's uh, of course Disney Plus. I actually bought or got the subscription to Disney Plus specifically to watch this and I've only watched one episode of it. The first one I would say was, a tad underwhelming just because the reveal kind of at the end of the episode was the thing that everyone has tweeted about a thousand times when it comes to the series. Yeah. It does pick up, though. Yeah, I mean, it definitely at times has a little bit of a slower uh, movement to it. Um, it does pick up. Some of the later episodes are just great. But, um, yeah, it's one of the there's very few shows these days that you can go back to and like watch again and still enjoy it. Um, but, but I enjoyed it, uh, watching it multiple times. I think I've gone through it like three times now and they, they definitely have these little Easter eggs in there, um, where they kind of, you know, make fun of certain aspects of the star Wars. Um, you know, mm. I guess the, uh, which the ones that, that everyone kind of mocks those, the, the middle prequels? set there. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there, there's some good little like drops in there where they're kind of like, you know, to the hardcore fans, they're like, yeah, we heard you, we heard you, and they put them in there, and there's there's lots of those in there, and I love those moments. They're mm. so great. Uh, interesting. Um, let me uh, give you another, you know, because everyone will tell you to, obviously, The Office is one of the greatest uh, shows of all time, um, in my opinion. Uh, everybody's watched The Office uh, before, probably, if you're interested in it. Let me give you a little recommendation, though, of The Office Ladies podcast, which I just, <laughs> I, I, I first of all, just love them. It's Pam and Angela from uh, The Office. Um, and uh, they uh, go through and do a episode by episode rewatch as they talk you through everything that happened kind of behind the scenes. And then you can go watch the actual show. It's just a really fun way to consume a show, especially if you've watched it already. Um, I, I don't know. I really enjoy it. And one of my, I, you know, there's a lot of I don't know if you've heard any of this, Dan, and we can't really we don't have time to talk about it now. But there's been some darker times um, uh, in recent history in the United States of America and around the world. And um, one of the things that I get joy from is just how everyone on The Office interacts with each other today. They all just seem to be like best friends and talking all the time. And there's pictures with them out all the time and they're joking all the time. And this is like an extension of that. They're just like these. They're they're actually best friends, apparently. And they do this podcast every uh, every week. Uh, If you if you like this sort of stuff, definitely worthwhile. And then, of course, you can go back and watch The Office again. Yeah, I mean, it definitely never gets old. And you can see every now and then it seems like the right cast comes together and they have that chemistry and it just works. And um, you'd think they'd get sick of like office questions, but they all seem to like, you know, realize that they hit something and that this is a big deal and that not every actor gets to experience something like that. So they do all seem to have a very cool attitude about that. And, you know, as fans, like that's great to experience because they enjoy this kind of stuff as much as you do. Yeah. And I'm sure they're making a fortune off of it. Um, by the way, yeah. Steve Carell is <laughs> going to be, yeah. Yeah. Steve Carell is going to be doing a new, um, sort of vi- the vibe of the office, a new show coming out next month. It's called space force, uh, kind of based on the Trump program. It's kind of like a launch of, of space force. Uh, I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I will definitely be trying checking that out. Um, let me give you, um, let me give you two more. Nathan, for you, is one I love. I will always uh, uh, just say how great it is. It's just utterly fantastic in every way. It, basically, Nathan is a fielder, is a um, a fake business consultant that goes around to all these businesses, uh, and uh, all the people at the business are real. So he gives them these horrible ideas to rejuvenate their business, and it kind of feels like one of those like, you know, CNBC shows or um, Kitchen Nightmares or something like that, where he's trying to rejuvenate the business, but he's fake and everyone else is real. It's just utterly amazing. I can't say how great the show. I can't believe you've never seen this, Dan. We were talking about it off the air. I know. I, I, and I know I would like it, uh, but it has those moments. It sounds like of that. It's just so uncomfortable. Like I put myself in the the like their shoes, yeah, like oh, the yeah. person that's kind of playing the prank. And it's like, how can you hold it together? Like, I oh. just wouldn't be able to sit there and keep it going. I'd want to go. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I right. swear. I'm just kidding. It's that. But it's, they're able to just power through, and keep doing it. That 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 is like, you know, you train wreck television that you just can't you know avoid you gotta you gotta keep seeing what happens yeah and uh before we go i'll give you one more here which is on the same vein if you'd like nathan for you you've maybe seen that one it's kind of popular more now go back and watch one season show called dog bites man it's about a news uh, team that's kind of in the same sort of storyline dan we're out of time here but uh, thanks for coming on the program uh have a uh, have a great easter weekend you too thanks for having me all right back in a second
Remember when The Onion was hilarious? I mean, it's still funny sometimes, but I'm talking back before it was co-opted by the DNC and bled dry and turned into just another biased joke. I mean, it almost seems like an article you would read in The Onion. Uh, but now you turn to the Babylon Bee for such things. Uh, their stories are just so on point. It's like, just just terrifying at, at, at times. Uh, just today they posted an article <laughs> titled, Obama still holding his endorsement to see if someone else, anyone else, is going to run for president. Ugh, poor Joe. Uh, glad to be joined now by Kyle Mann. He's the editor-in-chief at the Babylon V. Kyle, thanks for coming on the program, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, um, there's, uh, there's a contradiction and, and two different standards uh, when you try to do comedy from the left-wing perspective and the right-wing perspective, or even the middle-of-the-road perspective at this point. Um, you guys are kind of in the middle of that, and you're constantly beat up. Uh, about it. Can you kind of see, talk about what it's like to try to do comedy in this environment? Yeah, you know, it's a crazy time to do comedy because there's so much material out there. Um, at the same time, people are very sensitive and, you know, they're sensitive from both sides. People on the far left are sensitive. People that are all in on Trump or all in on whoever their guy is are very sensitive. And so no matter uh, what direction you go, somebody's going to be upset at the same time, you know, uh, there's just so much material that's ripe for doing satire about, um, that sometimes it's, it's a bad thing though, because it's hard to keep up with <laughs> you're, you're trying to write satire. That's crazier than things that actually happen. So it's a blessing and a curse really. Tell me about the first time you realized that a piece of satire on your website was going to get fact-checked. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, we've been fact-checked since the beginning. Uh, some of the early ones we did, we did an article about Joel Osteen, where we said that he sailed around flooded Houston, passing out copies of his book from his yacht. You know, that got fact-checked. Uh, we, we did an article that said that Pastor Stephen Furtick uh, signed a $110 million contract to, uh, to join up with Lakewood Church in Houston, and that one got fact-checked. And then, uh, you know, and that was all, it's all very funny to us that, um, it, you know, there's a commentary on how crazy things are when people can't distinguish your satire from the truth. And so it was almost always, always a little bit of a, uh, a, a, a validation when your, when your article got fact checked. You guys are all over Joel Osteen. I mean, it's, I find it very, it's just an amazing sort of thing. I don't think he's, he's checking the website uh, that much. I don't think he's a huge fan of your work. How did all that start? <laughs> yeah, unlikely. Well, that was one of the very early things that we wanted to go after with our satire. We, uh, we felt that there are a lot of pastors out there who were preaching the gospel for their own selfish gain or not preaching the gospel when they should be. And, uh, and so that was something that we use satire for. Satire is a very powerful tool, um, especially when it looks inward and it attacks your own. Um, and so for us to be able to kind of hold up a microscope to the church and, and look at theological problems that we see and, and to make fun of prosperity gospel guys and televangelists, you know, satire is a cutting tool and you're able to separate uh, truth from lies with that. And so that was one of our early goals. And it's still something that we <laughs> that we go after on a regular basis. I, you know, it's an interesting thing you guys do because uh, you do a lot of politics. You do a lot of culture. Um, but you, it is from a Christian foundation, which I don't know that everyone necessarily realizes if they're only seeing articles about Joe Biden. Um, and uh, I, that's a, that's a really 
tough line to walk. You guys do some stuff that's pretty edgy. Um, you know, I the most of the Christians, uh, you know, that I that I know, and my family and, and, and my friends are, are, you know, they'll joke just as hard as anybody else. I will say there's some that are can be a little bit more sensitive. How do you walk this line? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you, you have to be on the edge. You have to be willing to go for the jugular a lot. That was one of the big problems with uh, comedy from a Christian perspective that we saw when we first started the Babylon Bee four years ago, is that comedy was very tame. Um, Christian comedy, that is, was Mm -hmm. very tame. Christian comedians would make fun of churches and worship leaders in a very lighthearted way, Um, but they wouldn't be willing to really name names or call out people that needed to be called out. Uh, at least as much as you see secular comedians doing that kind of thing. And so we, we felt it was a real problem, and, and we're willing to go there. You know, we're willing to, to uh, call people out that need to be called out. It's, there's definitely a line, and it's definitely a judgment call every time. Uh, you could have a really good article and a really great joke, a really savage burn, but decide at the last, se- last second that, you know what, this is, uh, this is going to do more harm than good. And so we're always kind of keeping an eye on where that line is and what kind of tone is appropriate for uh, tackling a given issue. You guys are the, sort of the antithesis of the woke culture uh, that we are currently in, which is a really positive thing. We need more people on that side doing that. Um, one thing I, I've, I've noticed, and it drives me crazy, is uh, we'll see you know left, left-wing sort of comedians um, come out and uh, they will be incredibly critical of anyone on the right who makes a joke that doesn't work or they say something wrong. But when it happens to them, uh, they are they all sort of unite together and they say, look, we you know, this is comedy. We should have um, a, a wide berth here for what we're doing. I tend to agree with that part of it that where um, they we should all be arguing, I think, for in defense of left wing comedians when they're getting, you know, canceled in the middle of this cancel culture. Um, I guess my question is, do you think, because they're probably never going to do it for us, should we be out there arguing for them? And have you ever seen an example of someone backing you guys in one of those moments? Yeah, um, this is kind of an era of weird new alliances and strange bedfellows because we find ourselves kind of more allied with... um, as Christian comedians, we find ourselves more allied with a lot of secular, atheistic, left-wing comedians who uh, support the First Amendment, who support free speech, um, than we do with a lot of, you know, woke Christians who uh, would be offended by a lot of of the stuff that we write. So it's really interesting uh, as we watch these new alliances emerge that um, yeah, there are some people on the left that would stand up and say, hey, yeah, I don't agree with the Babylon Bee's point, but, you know, they have the right to make this point and we're not going to try to cancel them over that. I, I, I think those people are, are kind of few and far between, but we do have uh, we do have allies on that side where, you know, we're willing to open up a conversation with people that are on the left as long as we're both uh, linking arms trying to defend the First Amendment. So it's, it's a really interesting time uh, for comedy. Talk about the importance of um, of satire, because it is such an effective tool and it it can is one of those things that the left, I think, does, you know, as a as a whole, a much better job 
um, in uh, understanding then the right as a whole. You guys do a great job. There's a couple of sources uh, that can push back in, in that world, but it's so limited on, on the right and, and for uh, Christians in general. You wonder, you know, is that something that we need to understand a lot better and realize how effective it is, especially in the sort of day and age where, you know, social media, people are just reading the headlines half the time. Um, this is an effective tool and it's something that maybe we should understand a little bit better. Yeah, and I think a lot of the problem is that the right often looks at uh, comedy, writing, creativity and the arts with suspicion or we just see it as as a means to an end. We see it as, uh, oh, we're going to expand our social media brand through humor, or mm. you know, we're going to use comedy to support this or that political campaign. But like, first and foremost, you have to be writing comedy because it's actually funny. You know that that, <laughs> that is the primary goal of of a comedian or satirist is to write something funny, uh, regardless of what point it makes. And I think. I think too often the right has been trying to make points with their humor. Like we need to really uh, attack this person or that person. We need to make uh, AOC look stupid or we need to make Bernie Sanders look stupid, you know, and, and satire can do that. Satire can point out people's flaws, but first and foremost, it has to be funny. And I, I think we've, we failed at that. Um, but, but you do see the left, you do see the left now being the ones who are falling into that trap. Because now the left takes themselves so seriously that uh, that it's hard for them to to write things that make fun of themselves. It's hard for them to write things that that aren't really preachy, you know, because they they take their points so seriously um, and they take themselves so seriously that and that just kills humor. So that's what the right has traditionally been bad at: is the right has taken itself so seriously, and that's the trap that we see the left falling into now. Also, is, is this changing, uh, kind of turning around a little bit? I, I, I do feel that there is that level um, of uh, there's, I guess, that younger activist type uh, that, that's out there. You know, the meme culture is a big part of that. Some of it I like, some of it I don't. But I mean, there is that that level of um, it, it seems as if the woke nature of the, the left positions where you can never be woke enough almost eliminates the possibility for them to be funny. So it kind of, it, it, it seems like a big open door for the right to walk through. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's one of the reasons that the Babylon Bee got so popular is because we were, we were willing to go places that the left wasn't willing to go. They kind of dropped the ball um, on making fun of themselves and doing balanced satire. And so there was a wide open opportunity for us to go in and, say, hey, we're going to make fun of characters that uh, all the other comedy outlets that are run by leftists and written by leftists, we're going to go places that they're not going to go. Um, So, yeah, I I definitely think that it has shifted. You know, as Christians in the 1950s, 1960s, we were the ones that were very straight-faced and, (laughs) you know, super religious, taking ourselves very seriously. And so that made us the butt of the joke. And now the left are the ones who are the butt of the joke a lot of the time because they're the ones who are very religious and zealous about their position. So there's a huge opportunity, you know, not just for the Babylon Bee, but for anyone who's creative on the right to, to have this opportunity to uh, use comedy and satire to kind of cut through the noise and, uh, and, and make the points that we're trying to make. All right, Kyle Mann is editor-in-chief of the Babylon Bee. Uh, we're f- big fans of your stuff here at The Blaze, and uh, keep churning it out, man. It's, it's really, really funny, and, in, and especially in times like this, man, it's needed more than ever. Thanks for coming on the program. Absolutely. Thanks a lot.
All right, back in a second. One more thing to watch, of course, blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew and save 30 bucks. Don't forget Glenn's new book, Arguing with Socialists. And check out, I was on Stephen Crowder on Thursday as well. Check that out. We will see you Monday.